Father, we just lift this time up to you. We don't have an altar anymore to gather around. Uh, That altar is in our heart. Because of what you did, Jesus, I praise you for that. And I pray that as we gather around here together as the children of God, the altars of our heart, that we would look to you and hear your word uh, individually, but as a corporate community as well. I pray that we would take care of this corporate community in, of believers in North Seattle. That we would see what you're doing and that we would, we would uh, sacrifice our time, our talent, and our treasure to, to help make what you call us to do happen. Uh, it's out of what you've already do, out what you've already done and what you're doing that we we serve you and honor you. So would you please be honored this morning with the word of God? And I pray that if there's anything that I've cr- written down um, that isn't what you want us to know, I pray that you would you would scratch that and put in what you need us to know. So we just trust you in that. I'm so thankful that we have your your word for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 2 and 3 today, Ezra chapter 1 last week, is the story of uh, the kingdom of Israel. Let's get into this just a little bit. Last week I, I shared some history. I'm not going to share as much this week about history. Ezra and Nehemiah are historical books, although, and so if you want to see some more about history, go to last week's sermon. Um, but uh, just a little little tiny piece. There was King David, and King David was the chosen king of Israel, the first legitimate um, strong king of, of Israel who worshiped God, who served God, and his son Solomon, King David, had this great idea to take the, the temple that was a tabernacle. It was a, a a, a building with curtains around it, basically, and he, he wanted to take that and build a monument, a giant temple for God, and lay a foundation to put marble and, and cedar and gold and all this gigantic temple. He had a great idea, but God said, actually, I'm going to use your son Solomon to do this. David had some sin issues and some, some personal issues that God had to deal with. And, and so in that, David got all the supplies ready for years, got all the supplies ready so that when his son Solomon was ready to build the temple, he could do it. And so Solomon would build this temple, and it would be a massive, monstrous temple, like huge and beautiful and glorious and, and something that was just pointed people to God. And there'd be a couple altars, an incense altar and a, a sacrificial altar, and the sacrificial altar would be this really large centerpiece uh, where the priest would would offer a blood sacrifice every day and then uh, a few times a year in different festivals. And this would go until till the end of Solomon's life, Solomon would turn his back on God. Amazing enough, the king of wisdom, right, would turn his back on God and he would go and pursue the 700 wives and their pagan gods. It was really sad. Out of that came the the split of the people of Israel became Judah and Israel. And they would war against one another. And they would war against factions and, and tribes outside of their uh, circle, but would not take care of one another. And Judah and Israel would be these reigning empires with different kings. And these kings were good and they were bad. And usually they were not so good. And so we had these his, this history of the Israelite world being split, divided, which God did not want, into into they're separate tribes, and then come, along comes the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, and, and God warned them ahead of time, saying, turn back, turn back, please turn back, or the Babylonians will take you over. And that's what happened. 
they didn't turn back. In fact, they would kill the prophets. Uh, there's a tradition in, in the Talmud that the, one of the prophets were killed and his blood would seep up through the ground for 250 years. It would continue to seep because the children of Israel killed him around the temple there. God's man. And actually, Paul says that later on. And Jesus says that, that you, killed the, you killed the prophets. And so the children of Israel didn't turn back to God, and the Babylonians would sweep in from the east, and uh, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, and they would overthrow Judah, and Israel was, was a part of that. And so the people of Israel were overthrown and hauled out to the Babylonian Empire as slaves. Millions would be killed, uh, hundreds of thousands would be put into slavery, and a remnant would be left behind. The poorest of the poor would be left behind to keep the ground uh, farming. They kept farming. And so the, the land of Israel still has some people in it, but it's, but it's the poor of the poor trying their hardest just to live off the land and then some warring tribes in the area, and that's where we come up to Ezra. The people of Israel had been exiled into Babylon for 70 years, and a king named King Cyrus would come, and, and he was a Persian empire, and wipe out Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and take over the ruling power of the region, a larger and larger ruling power. And so in Ezra chapter 1, end of Second Chronicles, Ezra chapter 1, we come to this guy named Cyrus, who God stirred his heart. He stirred the heart of the king. And so Ezra chapter 1, and there's just two verses I'm going to catch up from last week. Um, it says this, that God stirred the heart of King Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing. And the proclamation was, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple at Jerusalem. So he's telling the Israelites to go back there. And in verse 5, then God stirs the heart of the priests and the Levites and the people and the leaders. And this stirring is this awakening of their soul. It's like an, a, a point of awakening. The blinders were taken off, and they were able to see and understand. And so my encouragement to us as a people is allowing God to awaken us, to stir our heart, to be willing to be available to that, so that when it happens or when we're ready for God, when God stirs us, we'll be ready to move forward. And that's what they did. They moved forward. There's an amazing thing that happens in the Bible. Um, we read a couple verses and, and come to find out later on that in between the couple verses represents 40 years. And we just read two verses, yet it's 40 years. In fact, there's a verse in Genesis, Genesis 12, and it says this. Uh, it's a calling of Abram, and he's, he's coming out of the, a land of Ur, and Genesis 12, 5 says that, uh, well, this, right at the end of verse 5, it says, and he headed for the land of Canaan. And then it says, when they arrived in Canaan. And so we have this, this, uh, this thing, which is like, and they headed to the land of Canaan, and then period, and then when they arrived. And we get this feeling like, oh, they headed there like they went across the street. They pushed the button, the sign opened, and they went across the street, traffic, and now they arrived. Well, the thing is, is that Ur was some 900, 1,100 miles away from the land of Canaan. It was a long, long journey, a long ways for him to go. So those, those, the, the period represents maybe four months, maybe years. We don't even know how long exactly it took. And so when the Israelites came out of Babylon, they came from, guess what? They were exiled to Babylon, which is 
the land of Ur. It's where Abraham originally came from, that area, and Haran uh, farther north of that. And so, so the Israelites would be exiled back to where Abram came from, back into the land of Ur. And 900 miles away, four months of travel perhaps, uh, they would arrive back in the land of Judah. So that's kind of where we're picking it up here in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 is really a list of the Jewish exiles and, and who were who, who were stirred in their heart to return, about 50,000 people or so, and which a lot of people were left behind as well. And so that whole chapter, chapter two, I'm not going to read it because it's just a bunch of names I can't pronounce anyway. So there are a lot of families and people, and people had um, a strict understanding of their heritage and, and their lineage, and they, they had all these names, and temple servants and Solomon servants, descendants of Solomon servant, servants, uh, 392 of them, and other groups of, of the priests and the, the regular people and, and uh, families of the priests, and, and their, their families would come with them, and children, and, and donkeys, and mules, and horses, and all these people, and in uh, verse 64, of chapter 1, it says, in addition to 7,000 servants and 200 singers. If you're taking notes this morning, just write that word down, 200 singers. This is important. Often we think that the worship, the singing part of our church service isn't that important. But throughout the Old Testament, singers were important. So we'll get back to that in a bit. But then we, there's the rest of this is about gold and, uh, you know, gold coins and, and, and thousands of pounds of silver. And, and because the, the Babylonians were actually gifting the children of Israel stuff as they were leaving the land, kind of like the Egyptians did 400 years before that or so when they left Egypt. So in chapter three, so this, so what God does, he, he takes people from where they're at. So Abram, Abram, the, the father of the Israelites, God took Abram from where he was at, the land of Ur, and sent him to the land of Canaan. And often what we read is, and he left, and he arrived, right? We forget, we don't know what happens in between. But we know that in between is so, so important. But what God does is he, 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 he takes you from where you are, and he puts you where he wants you to be. God takes us from where we are. He takes you from where you are, and he puts us where he wants us to be, if we're willing. Although sometimes it's him by force as well. He doesn't ask us to change first. And so the, the story of Abraham, which is so important, is he didn't ask Abraham to change first. He didn't, he didn't say, Abram, change your ways, become a righteous man, and then I will help you get to the place. Or he, said, he, didn't, he didn't say, Abram, if you go there, uh, you get there, you do the struggle, you make it happen, I will then accept you. He said, Abram, I'm choosing you to show myself through you and through your people. God takes you as you are from where you are to put you where he wants you to be, and he does the transforming and the holiness work in us. At every point of our life, this is kind of what happens if we allow it. He wants to take us out of the land of, of self-worship to a place of God, of true worship. In fact, in the, the land of true worship where Abraham would go would be where the temple would be built. It'd be where Abram would set up a, 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 an altar to God and, and start sacrificing and worshiping God there. Yet, often, we end up returning to the land of Ur, don't we? So the children of Israel arrived, yet they went back to the land of Ur, the land of Babylon, or the land of self-worship. 
And we leave this space that God has brought us to, and we return back into And we kind of do this bouncing back and forth. And I'm just talking to believers right now. God has literally taken you without you having to become righteous. He's taken you, and he's brought you into righteousness, and he's brought you to where you're at. And I just want to encourage us to stop doing this. <laughs> stop bouncing back to Ur, back to Babylon. Stop choosing ourself and self-worship and follow God and continue moving forward in what he's doing. It is so beautiful. And so throughout the Bible, we kind of see this with the children of Israel. A good king comes along and he, he tears down all the pagan idols and he tears down all the, the bad stuff and he points people to God and people are worshiping God and things are thriving. And then a generation later, a half a generation later, they start worshiping other gods themselves. Other gods are always about ourselves. So in chapter 2, verse 68, it says this. When they arrived at the temple of the Lord God Almighty, some of the family leaders made voluntary offers towards the rebuilding of God's temple. So what they did, we have this four months of travel, 900 miles or so, and it says when they arrived, they gave. They arrived and they gave immediately. That's the first thing the people of God do. They didn't arrive at the temple as in they walked up and the temple's built. Somebody built it for them. Uh, the temple had been de- demolished 70 years before that and destroyed. Like, like everything was taken apart. It burned. Uh, tradition says it burned for 24 hours straight. And then they pulled the stones apart and destroyed everything. It was just rubble everywhere. It was ta- In fact, a lot of it was taken to build other things. And the 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 uh, the stuff of the temple was taken over to Babylon and set up in pagan temples there. And, and they had it, and they were returning, and they arrived at the site of the temple, the site of the temple, Mount Moriah there. They would look, and the first thing they would do is to give. The first thing they would do is reach in their pockets and say, let's get this thing built. And they did that as a community. What a beautiful thing. They did that as a community, not one or two people doing it. And so the entire, it really points to over and over and over the unity of the people. And they did this together and they went forward together and they built together. All right. So they rebuilt the altar first. Um, verse 1 of chapter 3. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. So I'm thinking, when it says all the people with a unified purpose, it was probably like all the people with a unified purpose. And they joined together in Israel at the place of the, the, the temple, and they joined there with this unified purpose of rebuilding the temple. Then these priests, uh, Jeshua and uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel and his family, and rebuilding the altar of the Lord, God of Israel. So they went to the spot where the altar, the sacrificial altar was at, and they started to rebuild that because they wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as was instructed in the law of Moses. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they built the altar at its old site, and then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord God morning and night. Well, the altar is a, a phenomenal thing with us as, as modern-day Christians, right? We don't really know what that is. We don't have an altar. Um, and so these people, there's warring factions still. The wall was still torn down. And instead of building the wall first, they went right to the temple. Instead of building the foundations of the temple, they built the altar. 
the altar was this spot of, uh, of communication with God at the time, right? And so it was a place where they could set up the, the worship practices that Moses had ready for them. And so that's what they would do. But we don't, we don't really have altars anymore. Like some of the high, ch- high church, like Catholics, uh, Orthodox have uh, altars that are more opulent and they're back in there and they're kind of protected and there's this altar thing going on. Um, but in the New Testament evangelical churches, especially, we don't have altars. Uh, we sometimes say it's the stage or you, you've heard it in the past, like come to the altar. We just sang a song about coming to the altar. It's not really a, an idea of coming to a place. It's not really an idea of coming to the edge of the stage. This is but a stage, right? Um, somewhere around 1800, the idea of the altar being the front came to be what the Protestant churches started to talk about. And it was really these benches of mourning. People were coming up front, and they would have this this altar call, if you will. And people would come up, and they would start mourning over sin and mourning over their country and, and, uh, uh, and weeping before God. And so the front pew, the front place of aisles, uh, became this, this place of mourning, these mourning pews or mourning benches. And so then it became this altar thing. Like a lot of churches have these railings set up and some knee pads are across that. And it's a place for people to come um, worship, kneel, and pray. And sometimes evangelical churches will have revival services and will have a call to the altar. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I guess, right? But it's not necessarily what an altar is. For we don't have altars anymore as a New Testament church. It's not an altar. Um, in fact, the altar that they had, we don't really have anything in our minds, uh, unless you've been in maybe in Tibet or uh, you've been in India, you'll see altars around. Of, often there, there's altars all over the place. Like at the side of the road, there'll be an altar to a Buddha or the another side of the road, an altar, an incense altar. And, and in some of the temples, there's bigger altars. Most of them, though, are, if not all of them, are incense altars. Incense altars was to cover up the smell. Often, actually, it came from covering up the smell of animals uh, who, are, who are part of the slaughtering process of altars. And so incense altar became the thing. And that's pretty much what's worldwide is altars. But in every religion, there's always been altars. In the Mayan religion, there's altars. And, and it was just the, all the Mayan ruins were gigantic altars to some god, some place out there who never talked to them. And so this altar in Jerusalem was probably 30 square feet, something like 15 feet high. It was a pretty massive altar where they would sacrifice animals' uh, blood to God to cover the sin of people. Come to find out, that blood never lasted, right? Until Jesus would sacrifice himself on the cross on that same hill. There's no altar in the New Testament, so we're no longer in need of priests to offer sacrifices for the absolution of our sins. We don't have to go to someone else to get resolution to our sin. It's been done for us, finally, through Jesus. Our altar is more personal now. And so 2 Corinthians, Paul points to the idea of the altar. The altar is not available in the New Testament at all in the new church. 2 Corinthians 5.22 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sins. So in that idea, there's the idea of the altar, because the offering for the sin is on the altar. But he made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins on that altar, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. 
He makes us right through the final sacrifice of Christ. So we offer a a different kind of sacrifice. We offer ourselves instead. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul is pleading and he's saying, listen, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be, let your lives be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the true way to worship him, is to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. This sacrifice is a on a different kind of altar. So what, what is an altar for us? That's what I'm getting at. What is an altar for us? Is it a place? Is it a, a thing that we have to travel someplace once a year to go to the altar? To, is, it, is it somebody that we got to go through to get to God? Well, the New Testament really points to this different kind of altar, and it's an altar on our heart, of our heart, if you will. The sacrifice and worship, they always go hand in hand. And if we don't have a place to do it anymore, what is that place? It's not the building. This has never been set up as the altar. This has never been set up as the altar. The building's never set up as the church, in fact. This altar is different. It's the altar of the heart. Sacrifice and worship always go hand in hand. The visual, for us to sacrifice as a visual, it kind of points us and gets us to a place of worship. So we sacrifice on this altar our time, talents, and treasures. If you kind of think through that, in Thanksgiving, I always thank God every time I can sacrifice for him, right? Thanking, thank you, Lord, for letting me sacrifice and give for your glory on the altar that you've provided. And so it's really our heart, this place of of sacrifice, this altar is a kind of, of place to communicate with God. And as Christians, we, we go back to some disciplines of repentance and confession, of prayer, of reading the word, of obedience, and of faith. And that's about a spot, the heart altar, not a place that we go to. And so it is true, we can do church wherever because we're communing with God in the heart, heart altar. We can go to the woods and commune with God. You can commune with God at home alone. You can commune with God uh, uh with a heart altar, watching a service, this space isn't required for communing with God. But it is great for the fellowship of believers coming together with a shared heart, the temple of God, Jesus being within us now. The Israelites arriving in Jerusalem had a destroyed altar. It was torn apart. It was demolished by the enemies of God. But was it really demolished by the enemies of God? Sometimes we want to blame somebody else for the demolition of our heart altar. We want to blame the enemy. We want to blame something. But really, it was because of the Israelites' rebellion and their kneeling at altars of pagans, pagan gods and pagan worship that the, the altar was destroyed. But God used the Babylonians. But he used them because well, the Israelites were already destroying their own altar. We do the same thing often. Have you ever felt like your altar has like fallen into disrepair? We talk about the New Testament altar, the altar of our heart. Has it fallen into disrepair? Have you knelt at another altar? Have you found yourself neglecting the altar? Have you lost your desire to approach the altar at all? Well, this doesn't happen overnight. You know, the Israelites, it wasn't, One day they woke up and was like, oh, surprise, surprise, the altar is destroyed. It was over time and a lot of God's being compassionate and saying, please turn, turn back or the enemy's going to come and destroy the altar, the place of communication with God. 
doesn't happen overnight. There's no surprises. And over time of neglect and over time of disobedience and over time of keeping the wrong company, and our altar gets torn down. So four things here with that is, is this idea of neglect. Neglect damages. If you have a house, how many of you own a house in the Northwest, right? You know that neglect of keeping your house up will cause a lot of problems. You're going to have moss. Right now, I'm putting moss killer on my roof, right? And if, if I don't do that, next year, there will be a lawn on my roof, right? This is the Northwest. If, if I don't keep up with my house, there's going to be rust, and, and that rust is going to corrode, and then there's going to be holes where rats and mice are going to get into the house and start nibbling and chewing on things, and my house is going to be destroyed in the Northwest. There's going to be mold, and there's going to be erosion, and there's going to be weather, and the, the foundation is going to be eroded against, and all this stuff, the siding is going to break down, and, and if, you, if you don't have some kind of metal siding that's going to rust over time, you have cedar siding that's going to start falling apart at some point and start molding and and corroding. Neglect tears an altar apart. It allows it to be torn apart. But there's a different side of neglect, right? It's it's paying attention to. Paying attention to it. If we pay attention to our house, it doesn't fall apart. You know that if somebody doesn't live in a house, it takes one year before that house is unlivable in the Northwest. If somebody doesn't just live there, just clean the dust, just take care of it. So, so there's the other side. There's, there's, a, there's caretaking. There's being attentive and repairing and, and keep upkeep, right? There's sprinkling the stuff on the roof so the moss doesn't grow, which is probably the worst thing of a house, right, in the Northwest. There's taking. It's, it's, a, it's a power washing the sidewalk. It's power washing the side of the house. It's, it's cleaning. It's taking care of. It's, it's kill, or, um, eliminating the rats and the rodents, getting rid of them. Sending them to the neighbor's house, right? <laughs> Clogging up the fence. And I have a live trap. It, it, it's proved not to be a live trap, actually, because they keep dying inside the live trap. So I don't know. Anyway, it's taking care of things, right? Attention, attention, attention. And the other thing is, so neglect is one of those things for our heart, and, and neglect um, damages our heart, but also disobedience. It brings destruction to our, to our heart altar disobedience and the children of Israel would realize their disobedience over and over and over and it brings destruction we cease to grow we cease to to be aware of ourselves and what God's even speaking to us and sin sin is a self-inflicted pain this rebellion this disobedience is a self-inflicted pain and we wake up and go what am I doing here well, what am I doing here are choices that I've made it wasn't somehow I woke up and 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 I just started right it's choices that I've made and places that I've gone of disobedience before God. And I just encourage our family to be obedient before God. Because as disobedience destroys, obedience builds. It cleans, it heals, it, it strengthens us. It brings us to a new awareness and communication with God, which is beautiful and wonderful. And if there's neglect and disobedience, often it's the company we keep, right? We become like those we hang around with, so we realize with King Solomon and the children of Israel. We become, many of you know that quite well. In fact, you know it so well, you don't hang around with certain people because you become like those people, and you don't want to become like those people anymore. We become like the people we hang around. And so inside of that, our, our altar is, is uh, manipulated and destroyed and becomes something else. And the children of Israel would literally offer pagan sacrifices on the, the, the altar of God. 
crazy enough. We would do the same thing. Maybe it's not the people we're around, but maybe it's the media we're around. And in this day and age, in the past, it would be places we'd gather and, and third places that we would go and people we'd gather in our home and we still do that. But now it's this media consumption that we have. Those are the people we gather around and we become like, right? And we think, oh, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just home alone. Yes, you are home alone with a group of people. With people, you're becoming alike. Whenever... Sometimes I pause and think, should I say that, right? But I will. What the heck? So whenever <laughs> Pete's saying, no, don't say it, right? <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, right, we, we know a lot about each other by just going down the list of movies that are on top of our list or the ones we watch, right? The YouTube channels we follow, the people we crave to be uh, listening to and the, the things we listen to. And you realize there's... Uh, everything put aside, there's things that we allow ourselves to be part of in this community online that we would never do in public. But what happens is the company we stay around just starts destroying our, our altar and our communication with God. But when we choose wisely, our altar is built up and communication is opened up and we, we stay um, acting like God wants us to act and reflecting him and overflowing our altar unto people around us and the way we behave. But there's another, there's a fourth thing that dismantles our altar, and that sometimes that is just harm from other people. This week, I've talked to three people who, who told me that they're having a hard time going back to the church, if they ever will, because of the harm that's done by them by church, by pastors, by the church as a whole, by people of the church. That this in incredible harm has been done to them. And that, that starts destroying and corroding and, and dismantling uh, more than anything. It dismantles this, this heart thing, right? It dismantles our altar. And, and people are even saying, I'm dismantling my Christianity. And part of that is okay as long as we have an, a, a, an avenue of, of remantling, of, of, of re-putting it back together, of, of understanding, and, and not just dismantle it into oblivion, but dismantle it so I can build it back up. And so, yes, harm does dismantle things, and those are things sometimes we don't have any control over, but it doesn't have to dismantle our altar. It might dismantle our perspective on, on God, our perspective on church, but it can also create a, 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 a firm foundation, maybe a, an opportunity to grow because of a firm foundation we have. We don't need to be dismantled because that harm didn't come from God. That harm came from men and women of the church. That, that harm comes from different levels, and, and some of it is egregious and horrific, and some of it isn't so much, and it's all about how we're going to look at God and not look at humans. <clears throat> so there's neglect, disobedience, the company we hang with, and the harm that's done to us. But all those have a positive perspective of the attention we give and the obedience we follow and the choosing wisely around us and allowing the foundation we're built on to actually build up the altar of God. So verse 8 of Ezra. They're building the altar. It's so cool. They're excited about this. The altar is being built, and they're looking around. There's still ruins everywhere. I mean, they're, they're in a pile of rubble, right? The people in verse 7, the people hired like craftsmen, masons, and carpenters, and, and bought uh, cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is way far away, and paying them with fine uh, wine and food and, and oil. And the logs were brought down from Lebanon, the, the Lebanese mountains, and floated along the coast to the Mediterranean Sea, to, to Joppa, for 
King Cyrus had given them permission for this. And then verse 8, the construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. So they spent about a year and a half building the, the altar back and worshiping and celebrating this. And then they started to build the foundation of the temple. The Levites, who were young, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. The workers at the temple of God were supervised by these, these, uh, these priests. And in verse 10, we read this. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descent, descendants of Asaph, the old, old Levitical leader and, and worship leader, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as the King David had prescribed. With celebration and thanksgiving, they sang a song to God. And so the celebration begins. It was, it was a wonderful celebration. The foundation was laid, and nothing was built. It was just the altar and the foundation. That was it. And they went into celebration. Really a beautiful time. And this is a wonderful verse. Often we think, in, in modern-day Christianity, we think, honestly, let's face it, men have a hard time with worship. We just do. We kind of feel, and nothing derogatory about this or, or low about this, we just kind of feel that worship is a bit feminine for us. And we, we, we are men, right? We want to go snowshoeing and shoot some elk. I don't know, something, right? And, and I know that our, our world has this confusing thing with, um, with men and, and women and stuff like that. But the fact is in the church, a lot of men have a hard time worshiping because they just don't feel like there's any substance there. I've heard men at man after man say, I don't really enjoy the, the music part of church. I want to just know the sermon part. But we look in the scripture and we read over and over and over that people were hired to lead worship. People were hired to be the choir. Um, and, and often it was men, actually. And then we see angels come and there are men, male angels who are singing praises to God. And so and, and then there's this David character. And in First Chronicles, First uh, Chronicles 6, which is just a couple passages over here, we see David assigning worship. 631, you got it here. David assigns the following men to lead music at the house of the Lord after the ark was placed there. They were assigned, and in, oh, what is it? Verse 25, oh, chapter 25, verse 1. There's also David is assigning men. David and the army commanders then appointed men from the families of Asaph, Heman, and Judithan to proclaim God's messages to the accompaniment of lyres, harps, and cymbals. Get this. So he hired a bunch of men to proclaim God's message, not in spoken word, but with lyres, harps, and cymbals. So they hired a rock band to sing God's praise. And that's what it's saying. Then we have this David character, right? You know, David wasn't, let's face it, David wasn't just laying around on his couch smoking pot all day, kind of trying to think up things to, to have a, a poetic verse, right? It wasn't David. David was like a man after God's own heart. He was actually out slaying giants and, and leading his, his army in battle, except when he wasn't and when he was sinning. The worship in the Bible isn't, some like low class thing, second class citizen of some kind. I don't even know. It's not like this, this softness and, and uh, 
and and wooing into softness and candlelights and uh, and smelly things. Not that that's bad, but something in the scriptures actually points to a fairly manly type of thing. And as I, as I say, manly, it's kind of disappointing. Even saying that nowadays, our culture doesn't allow us to do that, right? Which is sad to me, because God does have men and he has women who are serving him in remarkable ways. So David hired these people. He wasn't just sitting around. This was a, 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 a warrior thing to do is to sing God's praise. And he, they would sing, they would gather together as a warrior thing to do. He is good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. And they would clash their cymbals and play their harps and lyres and it was a loud noise was happening. Singing is worship. If you're missing out on the singing is worship part, I would encourage you to to come to God in your heart's altar and go, God, what am I missing with the singing thing? And how can I enter into it? It's a spiritual revival in a lot of ways. And that's what was happening here. A spiritual revival was breaking forth. Many of the old priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple, they wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundations. And the others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far and distant. This was a loud celebration, a revival, if you will, bringing God's people back bringing them back to their foundation of repentance, confession, and prayer, and God's worship and obedience and faith. If there's anything we need to know as men and women of God is that the the foundation of our, our faith coming to the altar is about a repentance before God because that's what Jesus asked us to do, a confession of our sin, even a, a place of, of coming to him in, in prayer and God's word, reading his word, obedience to him, and faithfulness for the long run. And this weeping and celebration kind of co-mingled together into an amazing time of worship. Well, some were thinking maybe the good old days, and some were thinking maybe the good new days. And we divide those people up into two categories often, the conservatives and liberals, right? The good old days, we want to stay here and staunch this. The, the future, we need to go progressive, we need to get there. And there's so much more to that of remembering the old and going for the new. Remember, God takes us from where we were and puts us where he wants us to be. Both are necessary. How do we worship ourselves? You know, memories of the past, can we make sure that's Thanksgiving, imagining the future, this expected hope. But we can look at the memories of the past and be filled with regret and look at the future and be filled with fear. But we don't have to do that. Our memories are often skewed and inflated when we're thinking of the past. Whenever I tell a story of the past, of my life in the past, it gets better and better and better. And I, I look better and better. And as I look to the future, our, expect, our expectations of the future often um, it seems glamorous and, and perhaps z- zealous, but also pride-filled as we think about the future and we paint this picture of the future. Or it can be full of fear, which is also a bit of pride when you come to think about it. We are learning, we're growing, we're experiencing, and that leads to better decision-making and more wisdom to draw from without those moments of of the learning, of growing and experiencing. Without those, we're just plain dumb. We're stuck in moments of the past where we're unable to move, held back from moving forward. Our past is either an anchor or it's a rudder, right? 
Our past either it anchors us down and makes us not go anywhere, or it's a rudder that steers our future. I learned this so now that I can do this, I can move forward, I can succeed and be blessed. The monuments, though, right? We all have this thing about monuments. And, and when the children of Israel saw the foundation, it was kind of this thing. It reminded them of the past, reminded them of history. And so monuments are super important. And all society has monuments in history. We have it set up all over the world. In Joshua chapter 3 when they, or 4, when they crossed the Jordan River and, and went into Canaan, they set up a monument of 12 stones in the river there, uh, one that people would say lasted for hundreds of years, this monument of remembering the past. Monuments remind us. Well, it reminds us of the right, and it reminds us of the wrong. It reminds us of the good stuff, and it reminds us of the bad stuff. It reminds us of the right that we, once we stood, and and here once we stood our ground, here once this good person did this great thing, it also reminds us of the bad stuff about the world, the wrong. Here this happened, here that happened. The foundations were wept over remembering the good old days of Solomon's magnificent temple, or perhaps they're remorseful. You know, just to note something about monuments, as we've had a a couple years of monuments being torn down and whatnot, part of monuments being torn down is actually a good idea. Part of it's not a good idea, right? The mob effect of monuments torn down usually is a bad idea. It doesn't accomplish what we really want it to accomplish. In my mind, I'm thinking if we're going to tear down a monument that actually is celebrating something evil, we should tear that down and put a plaque there, another monument that says, in this place once stood something that stood for evil. But we don't. We'll scrape that land, make it bare, plant grass on it, and there'll be nothing there. My parents, when they were... Yeah, about a couple of three years ago, they were, I told this story a long time ago, but they went to Texas and North Texas where their, their family were, my dad's family was, and there was two kind of families and the carpenters and the fosters and wards and the, the fosters and the wards were on one side of the Civil War and the carpenters were on the other side of the Civil War. And they found this monument that when my dad was growing up next to this gigantic tree, this monument wasn't there. But somebody came along and put the monument under the tree and the monument under, under the tree where my dad grew up and didn't know anything about this, the secret was the great hanging of 1866, somewhere around the great hanging. 48 people had hung on that tree, had been killed because of their wanting to be part of the North and wanting to free the slaves. And the, uh, the people who were with the South hung them on the tree. They were all white on the tree. Part of that was my family, the Wards and Fosters, who were hung on the tree, which we think might have happened by the carpenters. So I kind of come from a diverted family in a bit. But anyway, the thing, the thing I'm saying is like, it's good to put a monument up and said an evil thing happened here. Let's remember this so that we don't repeat it. Can we just remember some of the past so we don't repeat things? Monuments are super important. So when the foundation was being wept over, hopefully it was remembering the good old days of Solomon's magnificent temple. But at the same time, hopefully it was feeling a bit of remorse for the pain of rebellion that that nation led to the temple's destruction. We can have that together and be okay in the society where we can have monuments and know the right things about them. We have nothing to compare the temple foundation with, do we? Really, physically, we have nothing to compare it to. I mean, if this building burnt down and we rebuilt the foundation, none of us would weep about it. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a building in North Seattle in 
who knows? We don't really have this temple foundation being wept over and being celebrated. But when we see the foundations of a person being built who has wandered away from the faith, it causes great celebration, doesn't it? When I got to sit with a couple people this week and hear their stories and listen to how God is revitalizing, reviving their soul and the foundations they had at once were being rebuilt in their soul, that is great celebration. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. That maybe is all that we can really compare it to. This is great cause for salvation. So at the end of a sermon, many times over the years, there's been altar calls. Or there's been revivals. Let's have a revival service. But we don't really need to do that anymore because the altar call is a call to God in our own heart, perhaps. And a revival is really to the men and women of God coming back to communication with God. God always, an altar call or a revival, is taking you from where you are to where he wants you to be, reviving your soul in the midst of it. So Easter is coming. The final altar and a beautiful revival is happening. Easter, right? Easter, where Jesus would be put to death on the final altar on earth that was necessary to give us life abundant, a revival of our soul, revival of our life. Ezra and Nehemiah, these historical books, we're going to have to tease some things out of it and understand a few things. And I think a lot of it is going to be us realizing as, as Christians, as the body of Christ, how it reflects how we react to what God's doing in our lives and how we react to what's happening against us from the outside. But my prayer is that we find ourselves at an altar, the altar of our heart, and we're worshiping God, but also in the midst of it, weeping. Because the weeping and the celebration together, the joy together, creates this, what Scripture says was this loud noise that could be heard from a long ways away. You ever hear the domes downtown, a touchdown happens, the domes kind of erupt? You can hear that a long ways away, right? Probably not here. Maybe when the 12 were like really going at it a long time ago. But we don't have that space anymore. Exciting church communities, that's the space. Celebration together. Altar call. Revival takes you from where you want to be, where, where you are, to where he wants you to be. Father God, I thank you for this time together and that we can serve you and understand you. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to open your scripture to us and continue to help us see you at work in our lives. I pray, Father God, that we would, we would join together as a community of believers, that we would realize that there's, there's no more, there's no point to this except us being a community of believers in North Seattle. There's no altar or throne or, or front, if you will, here. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that we're a community caring for one another, celebrating together, and that when you call us to something, we step up to it. We sacrifice our time, talent, and our treasure, and we step up into it and do what you're calling us to do. Because it's an overflow of our already committed and already um, beautiful conversation on the altar of our heart. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And, and I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here this morning who does not know you as Savior, has never come to the altar, your altar, never given their life to you, that they would do that this morning. They would realize the other altars they find themselves at are, are weak at best, are empty at most. 
And Lord, even more that those altars tear us down, tear us apart. I pray that we would not approach the altars of the world, but approach you. And I pray that you would draw us to it. Lord, help us keep our altars in repair with attention. So in the name of Jesus, amen.